Welcome to Are You Real? Finding the Authentic You, the podcast that focuses on Christians that are active in everyday life. Join in as we speak to everyone from successful business owners to educators to athletes about their faith and how it helps them reach out and revolutionize those around them to do the same. And now get ready to roar with your host, the voice of manifestation, John Fuller. Hey, Roar Nation, John Fuller here, and we are excited today for a special guest. Um, For those of you who don't know, I'm going to start getting on Facebook and doing videos, but I have been on a journey this last month um, of really just trying to spend an hour with the Lord in the morning and trying to clear my mind because, uh, like most of us, I have too many things going on, and I find myself in a place of just being anxious or my thoughts going everywhere. So, uh, and, and I think that speaks to a lot of us. So I'm really excited today because we are going to talk about meditation. And what I like about this conversation is I think in, uh, and you guys can, you can correct me if I'm wrong, send me emails, but I think there's a little bit of a new age, um, spin on that. People will say meditation, they just get a weird uh, vibe or whatever, and the thing, the issue that I have with that is, is the word says to meditate on the word. So that being said, I have brought on an expert to help us. So that being said, Felina, are you fired up and ready to roar? Absolutely. All right, come on. Okay, so Roar Nation checks this out. Felina is an author. She's a speaker, spiritual director, retreat guide, and yoga instructor. She's passionate about spirituality and making the world a better place. With a rare gift for communicating the dynamics of the spiritual journey, Felina gracefully guides others towards personal growth, bringing harmony to the active and contemplative dimensions of life. All right. So that was a mouthful, Felina. Mm. But I want you to give us that high view of kind of like who you are and what you do. Mm. Well, thanks, John. And I really appreciate you having me on your show. It's wonderful to be with you today. Uh, So yeah, who am I? I'm a very simple woman who grew up in Indianapolis, Indiana. I was the daughter of a pastor. Um, I was the the only daughter, um, two brothers, um, older and younger. And with that kind of um, frame or that kind of context, I guess I, I just want to say, I, I did grow up in a, in a really simple way. And, um, I was, I think I was a Christian from the time I was born, you know, I grew up in the church and I, um, took my faith very seriously, um, all my life actually. And, um, and then I, as I went through college and graduated, I, uh, ended up joining a, a little nonprofit that, served the most vulnerable of the world's poor all around the world. And uh, my husband and I did that work together for about 20 years. We ended up co-directing that mission and growing it from a few of us to about 300 working in 13 cities um, across the globe. And so that work um, was really with survivors of trafficking, children with HIV and AIDS, uh, children living on the streets, former child soldiers and war brides. And uh, it was really intense work, uh, that kind of social justice work, being exposed to human suffering, um, you know, really straight out of college, having grown up in a simple uh, Midwest American family. Um, it, 
it really kind of rocked my world uh, after a while. And, uh, and that really gets into um, kind of more of my story and what's kind of led me to do what I'm doing today. Man, that's exciting. That's a mouthful. Yeah. There, there's a <laughs> lot. So um, let me ask you before we kind of jump into your journey, because I'm really intrigued by it. What has been like an inspirational quote or a success mm-hmm. quote that has just kind of led you, whether, whether it's in this season mm-hmm. right now or just the journey you've been on? Mm, yeah, well, I really love that question. Um, my story is complex, like most human stories are. And uh, along the way, um, in my social justice work, and then... Um, as I began to evolve into doing the work that I'm doing now, there was a, a, a point that a point of crisis, which we may talk about. And it was during that season that I was meeting with my spiritual director and I came to awareness. Uh, and let me just give a little background then I'll give you the, the quote from scripture. But I, I came into some awareness around um, my issue in terms of self abnegation, which is really about hiding and not, really living into my vocational calling, my purpose, my identity as a child of God. And it was during a spiritual direction session that my my director said to me, um, well, she just shared that story in the gospel from Luke 13, which I was very familiar with, where Jesus healed the, the woman who was bent over for 18 years. Scripture says she was bent over for 18 years by a spirit. And um, as we were reflecting on that gospel passage, my director said to me, you know, Jesus's healing for her was to stand up straight. Mm. And so that's really um, been incredibly central to my unfolding journey. Dude, that was powerful. I mean, there, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of revelation in that. Yes. Yes. You know, to be healed of what was kind of keeping me crippled and bent over for so long, um, really was hearing Jesus say, stand up straight. And as a woman, you know, there's just a lot involved in all of that, um, giving, um, given kind of the culture that I grew up in, um, the religious and social culture around uh, what it means to be a woman and, um, and kind of the uh, denial of self in a way that isn't actually um, biblical. Yeah, so maybe we'll get into some of that. Yeah, yeah we, we got to get into that. That's great, because that's that really is true identity. So let's back up into right out of college. Um, that's really interesting, because you said, you know, typical uh, Midwest, I, we're in Texas. So I, I, I kind of mm. relate to that. Mm. Um, but diving into um, trafficking, the social injustice, mm. all that, why don't you go on some of that journey? Because I, I think that was you kind of went from zero to 100 it sounds like, and it got pretty intense. Yeah, yeah, it really did. So yeah, right out of college, my husband and I um, joined this this mission. It was it was a new little nonprofit. There are only a few of us, and we um, we got our start in India actually with uh, Mother Teresa and the missionaries of charity. We did a lot of work with her and her sisters in Calcutta, and then various places around the world. Um, she's been. Uh, really central to my spiritual formation. But uh, as we got exposed to um, the various, uh, you know, really dire needs of human suffering, at that time, it was the early 90s. And in India, 
um, children and, and adults with HIV were, uh, were really, they were considered lower than people with leprosy in the caste system. There was no place wow. for them in society, you know? Yeah. So they were really, um, cast out. And, um, many of these children were abandoned in hospitals and, um, at beaches and on roadsides. And they're just um, let like literally society just leaves them to the wayside. Like there's nothing. Yeah, back then, because there was so much fear about the disease, there was so little known mm. about it. It was like, you know, a plague or something. People were really frightened. And uh, and so there was just so much social um, ostracization for, for victims of that disease. And so that's how we got our start, you know. Um, and I mean, literally, you know, finding babies abandoned at, um, in the public. And so... Uh, from there, we uh, we ended up overseeing the entire organization, and a number of, of really college graduates started joining us and relocating to other places of poverty, working with children on the streets, you know, just whole populations. And I, I wrote an article at that time called Nations of Children. I mean, literally nations of children in terms of the numbers of children, you know, living on the streets around the world. Uh children in all different kinds of, um, situations of poverty. But, um, and so there are these crises of, of human suffering that we were encountering along the way. Then we got involved in, um, with survivors of trafficking, labor and sex trafficking. And so that whole world of, of suffering and exploitation, I, I'll never forget. I was, uh, we had a little apartment in Wilmore, Kentucky, where our organization was based at the time, and uh, we were traveling all over the world, and that was kind of our our headquarters or our, our refuge of, of home when we were back in the States. And I was uh, combing through a collection of Newsweek and Time magazines that were reporting on this horrific industry of sex trafficking, and I was just, you know, this little... In a young, innocent girl from middle of America uh, who grew up attending church three times a week and really quite sheltered and isolated from the rest of the world was completely devastated. You know, like I just, I couldn't believe that this kind of thing w- was going on and that we could let it go on, you know? And so then um, as time went on, uh, we were exposed to places of, of war, uh, civil co- combat, and we ended up in Freetown, Sierra Leone at the peak of the war over blood diamonds. And um, some of our listeners might be familiar with with that particular war because there was a a fairly famous film that came out about that called Blood Diamonds. Yeah, it was good. It was a man. I cried, actually. And I I remember it with uh, Leonardo DiCaprio. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah, and it was it was very well done. It was very true to the the complex story there around conflict diamonds and um yeah, it was just so we ended up there and that was about 8 years into my service around the world and and it was there that everything began to change for me. So Hey everyone, I recently found an app that I want to share with you that I think would bless you. It's called Church Home. And what I really enjoy is the convenience of having great sermons, they have inspirational quick videos, and you have the ability to connect with other Christians all over the world. 
And what I love about Church Home is that it's not about excluding people and it's not about being perfect. It's about being together where everyone's welcome. So Church Home was started 25 years ago and they had the belief that church isn't so much about a place, but about the people. And that was the thinking behind their new Church Home global app. It allows you to connect with people all around the world and have honest discussions, great meaningful relationships, and the coolest part is you can do it all from your phone. So with Church Home Global, you always have access to a positive space and a strong community of people. And I just want to invite you guys today to join me at the Church Home Global app. You can download it for free at Church Home Global app. It's available on the App Store or Google Play. And you can text UPLIFT to 555-888. That's Church Home. C-H-U-R-C-H-O-M-E Global. Again, it's available at the App Store or Google Play. Or you can text UPLIFT to 555-888. See you there. Yeah, I want to dive uh, into the change because obviously um, you, you go, uh, and I remember speaking to your husband, I, at some point you guys burn out. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and and I just can't imagine because I, I feel like I have a pretty big heart for people. And when I see that kind of stuff, I automatically want to fix it. But you can mm-hmm. only fix so much. Mm-hmm. And I think there's so much hurting and so much going on. I th- and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you get to the place like where you just push and drive so hard and then you just kind of realize, like, am I really making a difference? Because there's there's so much of it. Like, you realize, like, I can't fix it all. Yes, and it, John. And it just yeah. hurts. Yes, John. That's it exactly. I mean, you've really cut to the heart of of a heartstring of my vocation. And, and, and my story might, you know, all of our stories are unique. Mine's unique in the way in which I was exposed to masses of human suffering, uh, at a fairly young age. But, um, but what that did for me was it, it, it brought me to that place of the limits of myself at a fairly young age. But all of us, at some point, if we live long enough, come to the limits of ourself. We realize that we can't fix it all. We can't do it all. We realize that there's something driving us that isn't always uh, aligned with the divine will. And that's what burns us out. Because, you know, I I witnessed Mother Teresa and the Missionaries of Charity for years. Uh, they, you know, they work with incredible human suffering on a daily basis. They live with it day in and day out. And uh, early on in, in my work, we started to see our people, our staff, burning out. We were doing similar work among similar populations of people, but the Missionaries of Charity were not burning out, and they don't burn out. You know, maybe every now and then, but not like the rate that we were seeing with our people. And I, and it was, uh, really informative for me because I realized they have particular practices, spiritual practices, rhythms of action and contemplation that I'm convinced make all the difference. And, Mm -hmm. and so for us, um, any of us, you know, when we come to the limits of ourself, I think we're realizing that we need, spiritual practice to help us stay aligned with the divine will because there's too much of our own uh, unconscious motivations that are driven by something else and usually some kind of hidden um, self-serving ego kind of thing. And it's, it's neither good nor bad. It's just the way it is in our human condition. But until we awaken to that, uh, we, we really aren't free to 
really live and move and have our being in God as, as scriptures, you know, tell us is possible. So I want you to take me down that journey, um, kind of where you had that moment, like you're thinking to yourself, like, I just can't do this anymore because I, and, uh, and what I love about that, this, these stories is then there's light at the end of the tunnel because your book, uh, which we're going to get into, um, and the things you had to learn to recover Mm -hmm. from burnout, Take me to that moment, though, or kind of what led up to that, yeah. where you get to that place and you're just like, I can't do this anymore and I'm done. Yes. And then the journey of where God healed you. Yes. So, uh, as I mentioned, you know, it was about eight years into our work around the world and we ended up in Freetown at the peak of the war over blood, blood diamonds. The UN peacekeeping troops were in the capital city and the war was still going on outside of the city. We were staying in, um, a guest house where like the doors had been blown off their hinges and there were, uh, like gun gunshots in the walls. And I mean, it was pretty intense, you know, your parents had to be freaking out. <laughs> oh, I'm no. like, I'm thinking about my baby girl right now. Like if she was in that, I'd be like, baby, you're coming home. I know. Right. I mean, it's just like, what in the world were we thinking? You know, I, I, I like to think it was the grace of God carrying me to these places and I just, at this point in my life, I don't, I don't know if I could do it, you know? So, but anyway, there I was and my husband's an eight. So for those who understand the Enneagram and I know you do a bit, um, the the eights love intensity. So, you know, I was kind of along for the ride in a lot of ways, but at any rate, um, we were there and it was very intense and we ended up at, um, we had a, a guide who was taking us around to the different refugee camps from the, um, displaced people who were flooding into the capital city and literally flooding in with arms and legs having been amputated by both the government forces and the rebel forces. They had used amputation as a tactic for fear and control of the population. And so um, it just awful, innocent, you know, farmers and their wives and in some cases children um, bleeding, you know, just coming in and just running for their lives. It was pretty awful. So we end up in these refugee camps and, um, and I end up at one for young girls. So these were, uh, former war brides, which are young girls who are taken captive during war, um, for domestic and sexual slavery. Mm -hmm. And many of these girls uh, really wanted to tell their story. Like it was therapeutic for them and they were desperate for anyone from outside of the country to know what was happening and what had happened to them, uh, to do something for them. Cause their entire world was devastated. They had no idea how they would survive, you know? And so I listened to story after story after story. And, you know, I understand now there was a lot of, um, secondary trauma, I'm sure that I, that I experienced, um, I'm very empathetic. And so listening to those stories was very difficult. Uh, I did my best to be present. And then, uh, as they were telling the stories of these soldiers and what they'd done to them, I, uh, started to imagine these soldiers and, uh, and I grew quite angry and, you know, righteously. So like someone had done this to them, it was a crime, it was wrong and they needed to pay for their crime. You know, I wanted justice and my life up to that point had been all about justice, about, correcting what was wrong in the world. And, um, and the way that I had done that really was 
finding someone to blame for all the poverty and injustice. And, and, you know, from my experience and my limited, um, perspective, you know, one of the problems that I saw was a rich, affluent Western church that was insulated and isolated from the needs of the world. And, and I had put a lot of energy into building those bridges and trying to make a difference. So fast forward, I'm in Freetown I'm, I'm wanting to blame the soldiers. And then the next day, um, the guide tells us that we're going to go, um, visit a camp for the soldiers who'd recently been disarmed. And these were the, you know, the, the abusers, the brutalizers, the ones that I had condemned. Um, and I couldn't imagine going to visit them. Right. Yeah. That's, I, I just feel my gut just turning at that point. Yeah. Right. I mean, it was just, I just can't even believe I lived through it all, but I can't believe even more that these young girls and boys lived through it all. So I end up at this camp and, you know, I am imagining these soldiers, um, just how horrible these, these men must have been to do such horrific things to these girls. And, and then I end up in a tent full of boys from ages five to 19 and they were in rags and their children, you know, and these mm. were the soldiers ha- who had committed, you know, so many of these atrocities. And my heart was ripped in two. And, and suddenly, um, my paradigm for making sense of the world really shattered. I ended up talking with many of these boys. They too wanted to tell their story. And it turns out, you know, they were also victims. And so what I found myself in was was a reality that was um, victims and like victims victimizing one another, and everywhere I looked, as I would trace it back, there was always you know someone was a victim. Um, whether I looked at the the guerrilla soldiers or the government soldiers, um, you know certainly they're to blame, and certainly. Uh, you know, we have to take responsibility for our actions, but, you know, even they were victims of, of a world that is slanted toward the, the rich and a world that puts, you know, a price tag on diamonds that these people end up fighting for, for their own survival of the country. And there's, it's a very complicated, um, situation, of course, but the point is that, no matter where I looked, I couldn't find someone that was ultimately to blame. Everybody was a victim in some way. So I came back to Omaha, Nebraska, where where our our um, our our organization headquarters was now located, and we were living here. And Felina, I want to stop you real quick because I'm, yeah. ju- I'm just trying to think out loud. Yeah, and and I'm thinking at this point because it is human nature to to shift blame. Yeah. And we look for somebody. But what is your conversation with God at this point? Because you'd grown up in a Christian yeah, hope. You knew the Lord because you internally had to, I'm guessing again, but really be struggling with like, what the heck is going on here? Yes. So here it comes. Okay. okay. It happens around my dining table with my friend. Just after we returned from Freetown, I was, I was retelling this story as I am with you now. And she looks me in the eye and she asks me, 
do you ever doubt the goodness of God? (laughs) (laughs) That's a, that is a heart ripper because you know, God is good, but then you see that and you're like, but where is he in that? Yes. And that's when the dam broke and I wept and wept and wept and realized that yeah, I'm, I'm doubting the goodness of God. And for, you know, a preacher's daughter from Indianapolis, Indiana, um, you know, who took her faith very seriously, this was devastating. You know, I didn't want to admit that. So I started to shift blame toward God. You know, if I can't find anybody else to blame, ultimately, yeah. So thus began a, a crisis of faith for me. And, um, I, it wasn't long after that that I ended up meeting um, my beloved teacher, Thomas Keating, who is a Cistercian monk who is now in hospice. He's um, in his 90s, and he's, he, j- he keeps bouncing back, but um, I, think, I think this is going to be it now. Um, he won't be with us much longer. He um, introduced me to the, contemplative, the Christian contemplative tradition and a practice called Centering Prayer, which is a contemplative prayer practice, a meditation practice within the Christian tradition. And, uh, and it's, it changed my life because now I had a way to be with God in silence with all of my doubts, my questions, my turmoil, with all of the unresolvable in my life, the unresolvable in the world that I couldn't make sense of, the unresolvable in the fact, like just coming to my own limitations, realizing that I I couldn't fix this, um, that I couldn't um, continue on in the way that I had up until that point, that there had to be a new way of being in the world. And, and I didn't know what that new way of being could be like. So I was just, you know, at the end of myself and I found a way to stay connected to God, um, with all of that, all of the paradox and contradiction and pain and suffering and, uh, doubts and questions. Okay. So, so many questions here, but I'm thinking, like, let's go down that journey of having that mentor and like what he showed you and what that looks like. Cause this, this goes into your book, correct? Mm-hmm. As far as what yes. you learned. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so the Christian contemplative tradition is a part of our lineage as Christians, but we've been really cut off from it. Um, Back up. Why? I'm curious why, because, yeah, yeah, because yeah. I feel like, like the, the, the new age movement and when I say that, it's just more spiritual. When I say new age, I mean like spirituality without Jesus mm-hmm. has really taken that in as like theirs. But I don't think that was theirs. I, I really think I'm curious because mm-hmm. I'm guessing what you're going into is something that, you know, our our spiritual fathers had hundreds of years ago that somehow has not carried over into Western society. Exactly. Exactly. And there's really great history written on this, but I'll... I'll I'll try and summarize um, in this moment here. So, yes, it's complicated history, um, but if we look back um, at some point along the way, Constantine ended up um, making Christianity the religion of the state. And so at that point, that's when we get Roman Catholicism. Up until that point, you know, the, the people were just Christian, and they were largely marginalized from 
from the dominant power of the state. I mean, it's a similar, you know, it starts with the um, with the Jewish people um, and their lands being occupied at the time of Jesus and all of that. But then once Rome adopted Christianity, Christianity became a religion of the state. At that point, um, you start to see the merging of religion with uh, state um, state objectives and agendas. And I mean, this is when we get into some of the sordid history of our, of our, of our religion around like the crusades and uh, forced conversions and all of this throughout Europe. Well, then along the way, um, there's a, a, a fledgling of incredible, um, people that we look to in our tradition called the Desert Mothers and Fathers. And these were the ones who fled the empire and went into the deserts to devote themselves to a real radical faith, a life of prayer and work. And and these are the ones that we get um, incredible wisdom from in their writings around how to really live the teachings of Jesus. And then um, in 1054, there was a great schism, which is when the um, the Eastern Church and the Western Church really um, became two separate entities, and um, and that's when you start to get then the Eastern Orthodox and the Western Catholic traditions. And a lot of the uh, desert mothers and fathers at that point were more um, aligned with the Eastern Church. So then Rome takes Christianity to the West, and we get further um, displaced from um, from the desert mothers and fathers, which really they they had a way of holding on to this contemplative version of the faith, which was all about embodying the faith, um, living the faith um, from a place of deep prayer and um, consciousness or awareness of um, of all kinds of things, discerning spirits, um, discerning um, you know the ego versus divine presence within, and and so. Uh, and so the so all of the contemplative part of the faith got more and more marginalized in the West, um, more and more on the outskirts. But there's always been a remnant, and these um, these become the saints that we read. People like John of the Cross and Teresa of Avila and Francis and Claire of Assisi and uh, all different kinds of of incredible you know people who lived the faith. And we continue to read from them and learn from them. But as far as our Christian formation within the religious institution, um, a lot of that really got lost. And by the time of the Enlightenment, um, there was a even further distancing from the contemplative part of our faith in um, preference for the rational mind. And so if you think about it today, um, most of us are largely formed in the church um, from the perspective of of kind of the engagement of the mind, a very rational kind of um, didactic way of engaging um, scripture, study, teaching, which is all great. It has a place, but it's only one part of the mind. There's the other part of the mind, which is the contemplative, the intuitive, um, 
yeah, the part of our mind that um, can actually hold paradox and contradiction. So where the rational mind is good at um, seeing the parts and dissecting the parts, the uh, contemplative mind is able to see the whole. So when we come to the end of ourself and we're facing various contradictions, um, paradoxes, um, not able to resolve um, the pain and suffering or limitations that we're experiencing in life, the rational mind can't hold that. The rational mind can only see there's pain and suffering and I'm suffering or I'm in pain. What do I do about, how do I, you know, deal with that? The contemplative mind has a way of being able to hold all of that. And, and we see, I, we really see this contemplative mind at work in Jesus, I think perfectly and, and, and him on the cross in his suffering, um, his incredible suffering and persecution at the hands of the people. And what does he do? In the midst of his pain and suffering, he looks out on the crowd and he can pray, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. You know, how can you hold that? kind? And I think this is what we come to realize in our life as we, as we experience life over time. You know, how do I really love my enemies when I have been a victim of my enemy? How do I love the one who's betrayed me? How do I forgive, you know, over and over and over again? Um, these kinds of things are, we just can't do with with only one part of our mind. We need the contemplative mind to hold um, both and. So, so you got my curiosity in this because I see a clash between uh, what you talk about Western and Eastern church. Mm. And at some point growing up in the church, um, and, and I've had this conflict myself, I'm just curious if at some point you almost feel like a heretic or like mm-hmm. like this internal struggle, like, well, was I taught right? And, mm-hmm. and is it wrong? And what is right? And mm-hmm. what is wrong? And it, is this false? And like mm-hmm. having to do the mental gymnastics mm-hmm. of unteaching, I yep. guess, unteaching yep. what you've been taught and mm-hmm. saying, this is, this is what Christianity was originally supposed to look like. I'm curious, yeah. did you go through that? Oh, yeah. I mean, I yeah, I, I can't help but ask those questions as I get more acquainted with the history and the problems that have come down the line um, as we've gotten further and further away from the master from Jesus and his teaching and his life. And, and I do think there are a lot of problems with the religious institution that we've inherited. And yet I don't think we throw the baby out with the bathwater. You know, I think there's a way to receive uh, the good of what the church today has been able to offer, but recognize again, it's the both. And, you know, it's, it's recognizing the good, but recognizing the limitations as well and and trying to um, get to the heart and the essence of more of a whole a holistic version of the faith and how we live that faith today. I like that. I like that viewpoint because basically what you're saying is I'm not going to find the bad in it. I'm going to find the good in both and then merge mm-hmm. them together and see mm-hmm. uh, what what God has created out of both of those. Yes, yes, because certainly God is present and at work as much in the suffering of my beloved people in Freetown, Sierra Leone, as in the broken, fragmented parts of the church, you know. Absolutely. 
Okay, so let's get into your book part. So you've obviously obviously been through some radical transitions. Mm. Um, why don't you dive into your book as far as the things that you've learned and then how that was like life altering, changing for you? Because we kind of left at a point where you've been broken, searching. Uh, you um, you meet a mentor, a monk, and that's coming together. So why don't you talk about what you learned and then how that changed your life? Yeah, yeah. So as I, um, I, you know, when I met my my teacher, Thomas Keating, and he introduced me to this particular method of contemplative prayer called centering prayer, that was like a like water in the desert for me because uh, I had I had gone um, from that crisis of faith into a real dark night of soul where I didn't know how to pray anymore. I didn't know how to go to scripture. I couldn't even really go to church because it was like, what do these people in Omaha, Nebraska at this particular church have to say about the human suffering I've been encountering? You know, it's like, they just don't connect, you know? Yeah. And so I was really struggling and I, you know, and a lot of my um, prayer life up to that point had been quite active. So in the way that, um, my lifestyle was very active. Also, my spirituality was very active. It was very much about um, me driving that experience, um, very much dependent on what I was doing, whether it was, you know, studying um, scripture, reflecting on scripture, if it was um, coming up with particular prayers to pray. It was very much driven by me. And I, couldn't pray like that anymore. Um, I didn't know how to pray. So I end up learning this meditation method of just sitting in silence and uh, learning how to be in silence. And the gift of centering prayer is that it is a practice of letting go. And so the like the mind has all kinds of thoughts, like the heart has heartbeats. So it's not about clearing the mind. It's about learning how to be with the activity of the mind in a different way. And, um, and not only the mind, but all the faculties. So um, emotions, feelings, um, thoughts, whatever. And we know this, if any of us have taken time to observe our life at all, we know that our feelings and our thoughts um, are fluid at one moment, we might have a negative thought. In the next moment, there's a positive thought. In one moment, we might have a real dark emotion. And in the next moment, we can have a light emotion. And so these these parts of our um, human experience are really fluid, and we can't count on them. Um, they're going to come and go. And so learning how to be with all of that energy moving in my mind and my body and my heart in a different way, so I'm not... I'm not driven by all of that. I'm actually learning how to observe them and then learning how to let go. And what that did over time was it trained in me um, a way to let go of my own will uh, and become more aligned with the divine will in my life. It became easier to discern God's presence and action in the midst of fluid and varied emotions and thoughts. And then it became easier to um, see also where I was resistant to the divine will and then able to relinquish when I wanted to um, constrict or um, push away from 
um, the way in which God was leading in my life, I, I started to experience more freedom to say yes. So that's the thing about centering prayer is it teaches me how to let go of my own will. Um, the Apostle Paul talks about uh, this idea in terms of kenosis, self-emptying, emptying of the of my personal will so that I can be more filled with the will of God in and through me. And so letting go and then um, learning how to say yes to God, um, because sometimes God calls us to do things that are really hard and things that we might be afraid of and things that in our natural way or in our old creation, as Paul calls it, we, we might not be able to do. But in, um, in the Christ life, Christ who's living in us, um, there is a way to, to do that thing that God's calling us to. And so it's, it's, it's all about getting freed up to be able to say yes to God from a real free place. So I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm a learner by example. Yeah. So can you take me to a moment uh, or whether it's recent or before, as you're learning this, yes. that you kind of have that moment of that struggle that you're talking about of thoughts and emotions and releasing them and then allowing to be Christ-centered in that. Yes, yes, good. So this is great. This is the kind of work I do in spiritual direction, too. It's like I get my people to get very concrete and to a specific. So you're a good spiritual director, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, yeah. Maybe I just have a lot of questions and I'm, I'm trying to be observant, but no, I'll take that great. as I'll take that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, let's see. I have so many examples. Uh, okay, this will maybe this will be the, a good one to start with. Um, okay, so my husband and I were co-directing this international organization that had grown under our leadership over a period of eight, ten years. Uh, but the structure of the organization was was such that um, he was the executive director and I was one of the um, like managing directors. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, but just try to stay with me, if you will. Like there's yeah. like this kind of hierarchical structure that we were operating with. Um, as I was like I like to say waking up. Um, from, um, well, waking up to broader awareness, um, about, about myself, who am, who I am, this, um, going back to that scripture around, um, self-abnegation, like Jesus's healing to me was an invitation to stand up straight. Yes. So, so as I have this crisis of faith, I move into the contemplative tradition or path. I start, um, you know, meditating with the practice of centering prayer, I start realizing that Jesus is inviting me to stand up straight, that I have been bent over my entire life as a woman growing up in a patriarchal family, religion, and society. And if you know me, it's like pretty interesting because I'm, I am a very, I am a naturally submissive person in my nature. Like I, I easily fit into the role of the submissive, supportive wife. Um, that's exactly why God's bringing you through this. Right. Exactly. (laughs) I can see, I can see this, where this is going. Uh huh. Yeah. And so I'm getting this invitation to stand up straight and I'm realizing in a very concrete way in my professional vocational life that, 
I'm in a subordinate role in the organization and that is not reflective of who I actually am in the organization and that that needs to change. Oh man. I mean, it's a wonder that my husband and I have stayed married. So maybe that could be another podcast because like we have really been through it, you know, um, all of this invitation. So I'm having like these feelings and thoughts around, I don't want to say anything. It'll upset my husband. I don't want to say anything. I am. It it will disrupt my marriage. I don't want to say anything. It's going to totally mess with the system that we're in in this organization. I don't want to say anything. Like people might not like me if I push on this too much, you know. But um, I had to sit with all of those conflicting emotions and thoughts, and try and discern, you know, how is God leading me? What is the call? And it's, this is where the rubber hits the road, you know, the invitation to take up our cross and follow Jesus. Like, this is how, you know, one example of how I experienced that. Like, am I going to die to my will in terms of wanting to be liked and well-loved and approved of by my husband and my, by my board members and by my community? Or am I going to follow Jesus wherever he leads me and trust that there's a reason that we're doing this, that it's not just about me, um, but this is in service of, of a bigger plan and a bigger purpose. And so does that kind of help illustrate it? Yeah, I, I just love that story because I think a lot of times we're called to the opposite um, of who we are. The first example that comes to my mind is when God comes to Moses and says, Hey, I want you to go speak to the people or I want, I'm sorry, go speak to Pharaoh. And he's like, Oh, well I can't, I stutter. Yep. And like, we come up with these excuses and when in fact, I mean, it's now, had you been like, say a, a high D driven <laughs> type woman, yeah. like in the, in the natural, it would make sense. Yeah. But the problem with that is, is it would feed your ego and it would feed your flesh. Yes. God was calling you to do something in your flesh that was opposite of who you kind of were. Yes. And that's the beauty of it because you were doing something that wasn't natural to you. So it wasn't like there was a a motive to be like, I'm a woman, I'm going to step in. This is my place. Like it came from a very humble place to yeah. say this isn't right and this is what God's doing and that's what I love. Yeah, man, you are really astute. You more than any other interviewer that I've ever interviewed with, you are like right there with me like you get it and you're able to draw out of my story like the the main points, you know, so that hopefully other people who are listening can look at their own life and and see how God works in their particular circumstances and in their particular personality and all of that. Yeah, yeah so I, I, I learn from people's mistakes. And, and mm-hmm. unfortunately, a lot of my own, like I can sit back and say, Oh, that was really painful. I don't want to do that again. Yeah, um, yeah. But what I love about your story, though, is especially in Western society is because of the way um, women are viewed in church. Mm-hmm. Um, recently, if, if you'll, uh, if you look him up, and I'll promote, he hasn't been on our show yet, but it's Chris Valentin out of Bethel Church. And um, he wrote a book called Destined to Reign. And it's, and it's really, he's an advocate for women. Of mm. Basically just saying like, not just they have a place, but man, they are the other half of God. Yes. And, and men are the other half. And when we come together, we're getting the f- a fullness yes. of who Christ is. There isn't like one above the other. This is like yes. the fullness of God. And, and, 
and, and I think women need to hear that. And, and especially men, especially if you have a, a wrong viewpoint of women. Yes. And if a woman has a wrong viewpoint of herself, she needs to hear that because they need to step in because we need more God centered women leading. That's right. Yeah. I really appreciate you saying that. You know, my story is um, not welcomed in some settings. And so I'm I'm sure it's not, you know, so when I, when I get on these podcasts, I'm like, I'm not sure where the host is coming from. I'm not sure how they're going to, you know, read or hear my story. And I'm just so pleased that you get it. And it's, and that's exactly what I was learning along the way as I was struggling to say yes to God in these ways that God was calling me to stand up straight and to move into places of equality and um, various other ways of putting myself out there, it was like, um, I learned very quickly that this was not just for me. This was very much for my husband. This was very much for my community. It is, it is about moving into more of a fullness of, of embodied presence of God in and through our lives, you know? Yeah. I'm excited. I got to introduce you to my wife when we get a chance, uh, obviously off the show, because I I think y'all would just hit it off great. Awesome. Um, She's like that. She's just a very godly, uh, quiet, humble person, but um, just very driven. And if if you want to see her come alive, just say something bad about me or try to hurt my kids. And I think she would probably just come out of her skin like the whole yeah like like roar like you, know, like you invited us to yeah i'm like you should not have opened that bag so okay um as we kind of wrap up the show i do want to talk about um and we'll kind of end a little bit on this uh last question or i'm gonna give you two more questions but the last one being if you were to go back to mm-hmm. the younger you uh, knowing all the things you've you've seen, all the hurt, the pain, the learning of yourself, all that, what age would you go back to, and what mm-hmm. advice would you give yourself, knowing all the things that this younger you is going to see? Oh man, you know, uh, I I think what what immediately um, comes to mind as being important is going back to college years and telling myself to find independent, capable, successful women who know who they are, um, who aren't defined in relationship to men, and, uh, and learn from them. And when you ask the question now, like, I get a little emotional about it because, um, because I realize uh, how much of my life caused more harm than good, having not realized um, the fullness of my identity at a younger age, where I could have taken greater responsibility for my life and the lives of people around me, um, just seeing you know th- that lack of freedom um, being so detrimental to so many. And so I would have liked to have, yeah, had 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 better in- influences. I mean, I really didn't grow up in a culture that that um, supported women's flourishing um, apart from kind of how they were defined in relationship to men. Yeah, I bet that was really shifted too, because I would think you went from Western culture to Eastern culture, and I think even over there it's even less. Yeah, so, yeah. So, 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 so um, you almost took step down as far as what you saw of the yeah. way people were treated, which is interesting. 
Yeah. I mean, um, defined in relationship to men, like your husband or your father. And then in the East, what I experienced so much, and it's still over here is being defined in relationship to my children. So when are you going to have children? When are you, I mean, I used to get to ask that every single visit, (laughs) wherever I go around the world, when are you going to have a baby? When are you going to have a baby? And my husband and I decided not to have children. So that was a whole other big (laughs) kind of challenge to my, um, identity. I bet. Wow. Okay. Um, so I'm really just I'm loving your book uh, because I've been on a journey uh, of of just just spending time with the Lord for an hour in the mornings, which has been like brutally painful. Like the first three mm. days was great, mm. but uh, after that, I'm I'm still having to work through just being in silence. Um, mm-hmm. It's hard for me. So I'm, I'm really excited about your book coming out where, um, please tell my listeners, um, how we find you connect with you and then, uh, find your book as well. Great. Yeah. So, uh, gravitycenter.com is, um, the organization that I run alongside my husband. And, um, that's a great place to get started. Otherwise, felina.com. That's my personal website. And that also gives you a lot of good, um, connection points. Awesome. We're writing that and uh, we'll have all those notes for the listeners as well. Um, As a parting thought, what advice would you leave with our listeners? Yeah, I, I just cannot emphasize enough how critical it is that we adopt a contemplative practice. And, uh, in my book, mindful silence, which is coming out soon. Um, I, I offer, um, I introduce the reader to um, a different contemplative practice in each chapter, along with a particular teacher in the Christian tradition, and then I elaborate on a particular theme in the journey. So it was interesting that you mentioned earlier about um, unlearning um, some of what you've grown up with. Um, One of the themes is unknowing to know. Um, other things are things like darkness is light, how to understand the dark seasons of our life and, um, various other, um, themes that kind of illuminate what we get into when we embark on the contemplative path. I love it, man. We could talk for hours on this stuff. There's so much good stuff to dig through. Yeah. It's really great talking with you. It's so, um, energizing when, when the host is as engaged as you are. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. I think what would be fun is maybe we could do a uh, four-way call sometime. We'll, I'll bring on Casey yes. and uh, you bring on your husband. We can talk about marital stuff too, because that'll be fun. Cause we've that learned, would be awesome. We just celebrated our 20 years. We got married at, uh, in our teens. And uh, that was, um, we basically, I tell people, we grew up together. Wow, and, uh, you really got married as teenagers? Yeah, um, my wife was, I'm sorry, I just turned 20. Uh-huh. And my wife was 18. That's incredible. Oh my gosh. Yeah, so my husband and I just celebrated 22 years. Um so we've 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 been you know we kind of have experienced the same amount of time in marriage which when you get to this point there's a lot to reflect on, isn't there? Oh yeah, man. We can uh I realize how much of a jerk I've been for a lot of years and how much we had to grow up together and learn stuff yes. and learn how yeah. to fight fair and uh, just yeah. there's all kinds of stuff. It's fun. Yeah. Oh, well, I, you may know this. The did you, the um, prefrontal cortex of our brain isn't even fully developed until like age 26. Gotcha. 
So when we talk about contemplative prayer, we, we look at brain because there's a lot of brain science involved in, um, in the effects of meditation on the brain. And it's like, it's a wonder any of us can make it through marriage when we've gotten married younger than 26. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Very true. So, That's good stuff. All right. Yeah. Well, Felina, I just want to tell you, thank you so much for coming on. Thank uh, you. Love, love your story, your journey, and just um, just empowering women and what you're doing and just sharing it out there and especially just helping people heal from a God perspective, which is mm-hmm. awesome. Mm-hmm. Thank you for having me. And let's keep in touch. Absolutely. Hold on just a second as I wrap up the show. Okay. Roar Nation, thank you guys so much. I hope you enjoyed that. And most importantly, I hope it was a journey, uh, as you can realize going through this, that life is a series of a highway and making pit stops and just discovering who you are, how God made you, and most importantly, uh, really diving into the Word and allowing Jesus to heal you. Because uh, like most of us, as we go down that road, we just collect a lot of baggage and you were never intended to carry it. And uh, Jesus wants to get rid of it for you. So I just uh, encourage you to go get this book, spend some time in prayer, allow the Lord to heal your heart, and just go after whatever it is that God has for you. So Roar Nation, please get on Facebook, join our community, um, get involved with us. We'd love to hear from you. And uh, remember, be real, be authentic, and be you. God bless. That's all for this episode of Are You Real? Finding the Authentic You. Be sure to go to areyoureal.org for your free questionnaire to identify your gifts and talents and how you can use them to help people become leaders and catapult them into their destiny to help others become the leaders of tomorrow. We appreciate you spending your time with us and look forward to helping you reach out and revolutionize next time on Are You Real? Finding the Authentic You.